The thing is, the great news about this is like, okay, so if I can do something about the pain or the stressor, please go ahead and do this. But if you can't, you're not, it's not just all toast, right? Because you can work with that, what the mind does. The resistance, the, the worry, the reactivity. And to start with saying like, this is not personal. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Today, I'm excited to share part three in this brand new three-part series discussing all things chronic pain. This is an overlooked topic absolutely necessary to address, given that you can't be at your creative best if your body is in constant pain. You have constant headaches and migraines, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, or you are constantly distracted by brain fog. This three-part series is designed to give you three very different perspectives, as well as a variety of strategies to help you deal with your chronic pain and get back to doing what you do best, which is creating cool stuff. Now, in part one of this series with somatic movement teacher Julie Farbaugh, we learned how to harness the body's natural ability to heal itself. And then in part two, we spoke with TV editor turned chronic pain therapist Anna Holtzman, and we heard how Anna healed her own chronic headaches and migraines, and she now works with others to help alleviate their chronic pain. And now today in this conversation, we're talking to Dr. Christiana Wolf, who's a medical doctor, an author of the book Outsmart Your Pain, and a mindfulness meditation teacher who teaches us how we can transform our relationship to pain so we can focus on what's most important to us in life. So on that note, without further ado, here is today's guest. 
I'm here today with Christiana Wolf, who's a former physician and mindfulness teacher and also a teacher trainer. You are also the parent of three teenagers. You are an ultra marathon runner. You are certified mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR teacher. You are the author of two books. The latest one that we're going to talk about today is Outsmart Your Pain, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion to Help You Leave Your Chronic Pain Behind. And you also are a teacher and mentor to a very important person in my community and on my team, fellow coach Debbie Germino. So we are both very, very happy to have you here today, Christiana. I'm very, very happy to be here today. Thank you. So I have every intention of talking about chronic pain and talking about your book and diving into the details because you put a tremendous amount of time and effort into putting it together. What I actually want to talk about first is going to be a little bit more off the beaten path. Uh, and I don't want to make this a soapbox episode. But I have been very, very passionate for several decades now about how important the combination of Eastern philosophy and Western medicine is. And I'm obviously I'm going to assume you feel the same way because you have that unique combination of a lot of Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, but coupled with Western medicine training, you've got degrees, you've practiced Western medicine. So I want to talk a little bit more about you and your why and how you ended up going from practicing traditional Western medicine to blending these two together. And then, yeah, thank you. You know, it's um, interesting, like, like you don't grow up saying like, I'm going to be a meditation teacher when I grow up. Um, and definitely like when I was a kid that I didn't even know that existed. And now it's kind of a career and a lot of people go into mindfulness because they find really how useful it has been for their own life and then they want to share it. And for me, it was really something um, I was looking for a bigger meaning of life or spirituality when I was a teenager. And I already knew that I wanted to go into medicine, but then I stumbled across Buddhism. And like for me, being a very inquisitive um young woman, somebody telling me what I had to believe never worked for me. And so that the Buddha said is like, you don't have to believe anything. You just have to practice and see if it works for you. That was very convincing for me. And that is something that I have actually kept up until today. Like I'm still doing this. So if it works, then I'll do it. Right. So it's like less like, why is it working? And the philosophies is like, and like as a physician or like in the healing field, it's really, I always say like, whatever heals is right. And I don't really care where it comes from. I can already tell that you and I are kindred spirits because I grew up exactly <laughs> the same way. Oh. And to this day, you're not going to tell me what to think. You're not going to tell me what to believe, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, the, there's something, there's some some ninja-like psychology in Buddhism, pun sort of intended, yes. where it's like, believe whatever you'd like. And then you realize you're believing this belief that's telling you you don't need to believe it. Right. Um, and I kind of I yes. kind of stumbled into it the same way. My path was different in that I was very obsessed with martial arts and yeah. training martial arts for years. And through that, learned more about meditation. And from there, when I got to college, saw a couple of classes about Zen Buddhism. And I'm like, cool, this lied to the martial arts training, like very young energy, very yeah. masculine. And then I got into it more. And I'm like, this is really, really interesting. And it's kind of become a I don't want to say a lifelong hobby because I don't know if you can call it a hobby, but it's really informed the perception with with, uh, with which I see the world. Totally. And I think totally. that uh, when, we, when we dive deeper into chronic pain management and the things that you talk about in the book, there's no question that the Buddhist view of suffering seems to factor very clearly into a lot of the work that you do. 
It does. And then so people sometimes get a little bit concerned or they say like what we're teaching is stealth Buddhism, right? So when I go into hospitals or like some organizations, like it feels I have to be careful to not mention the B word, like the Buddha. But it's actually like the Buddha was just a human being and he stumbled across like some really liberating um, teachings about the mind. We call it mind training or mind and heart training. And that has nothing to do actually with religion. So we say like the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. It was just something that was kind of created afterwards. And he was actually very clear. He said like, no statues, like no, don't make me into a deity because I'm not, I'm a human being. And if we're thinking about like learning um, to work with your heart and mind to yourself feel better and for the world, like to make the world a better place, I mean, I think that is actually at the core of all religions. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually quite straightforward. This is what it comes from, where it comes from, but it actually, I'm not interested in making anybody Buddhist because that is such a personal path. Of course, and yeah. which again is kind of one of the interesting things about the reverse psychology of Buddhism, yes. right? Where you, you realize <laughs> you're is, becoming a Buddhist, but you weren't, is, even, you weren't ever supposed <laughs> to be a Buddhist. Um, but that's one of the things I admire about it is its level of flexibility. Yeah. Uh, what I'm curious about next, and this may be a little bit of a, a chicken and an egg conversation, but do you feel that the interest in Buddhism and Eastern philosophy came first before the Western medical training and the interest, or what I've also heard from many, many physicians physicians that I've talked to over the years, that when they go through the traditional Western system with the idea of really helping people, they realize I'm kind of being trained just to treat a disease or treat a yeah, symptom and yeah, never really treat yeah. the patient. So I realize that it's not an either or, but what was your your kind of, you know, the, the path to go from, was it the Buddhism first, which informed the Western medicine? Was it the Western medicine that informed the Buddhism? I'm curious how all this came together. That's a, that's a really an awesome question. So I think for me, what actually came first is that I had a very strong sense that I want to, I mean, it sounds grandiose a little bit, the big, I want to help alleviate suffering and my own and that of other people. And that is basically both of the systems are, um, that's at their core, right? So Western medicine wants to alleviate suffering. Buddhism wants to alleviate suffering. Eastern medicine wants to alleviate suffering. And so again, like for me, it's like, Whatever does that, um, does the trick. But for me, it was really, um, so Western medicine was just the only only thing available, right? Eastern medicine just was not on my radar, like at all, when I was training. And I was training like in Berlin in a university hospital, like very conservative, very Western oriented. I did a little bit of acupuncture, but it was really like, ooh, that was already like pretty fringe. And, I believe the word you're looking for is woo-woo, right? Woo-woo, yeah. Acupuncture, yeah, <laughs> that sounds very woo-woo. Yes, so I did a little bit of that. And it, again, like felt like oh, very daring at that point. But what was the interesting thing is, so like, so at that point, I was already a practicing Buddhist. And I never taught um, that to my patients because that would not have been appropriate. Yeah, because that would have been a religion. And back then, like secular mindfulness didn't exist, or at least not in Berlin. It was not a thing like it is today. And so what I really noticed that I used my own meditation practice to show up differently for my patients. So I actually never trained in Eastern medicine. Yeah, so for me, it was really like, how can I be more available and more human and more connected with the people that I'm working with? 
And I worked in gynecological oncology. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering there. And I really noticed that um, I was able to be with some of my patients and their families in ways that my colleagues couldn't. Right. So there's like, unfortunately, at times in oncology, the place where it's just like, there's nothing else we can do here. Right. And we can do comfort care and we can help you like not be in so much pain, basically. Right. But basically, you'll die of this. Right. You will not survive this, this illness. And a lot of physicians don't do well with that because they almost feel like it's their personal failure that they couldn't make that um, cancer go away. So that was that was just interesting. And I noticed that really like, oh, like I'm training in something here that allows me to actually stay connected in a more humane way with with um, people. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really admire about this more holistic functional medicine is that it's not just about what are you dealing with? What are your symptoms? How can I alleviate your suffering or how can I alleviate or eliminate the symptoms? And I feel that a lot of the Eastern side brings in, how can I bring you wellness? There's not, yes. there's not nearly enough wellness in the, the Western medical system, at least in my opinion. And I'm not coming at it from the inside. I've never trained. I haven't taken any formal classes. I have no degrees, but I'm surrounded by a lot of people that have. And they all say one of the reasons they feel disenchanted is the lack of wellness. And it's always about the illness. But, you know, wellness is actually, it gives people the agency to do something for themselves, right? So Western medicine is like, I'm the expert on the human body. You have a human body, so let me fix you. That's the model, right? It's almost like a car dealer, right? So there's something wrong with your car. You bring it in, I fix it, you get it back. And this is really the split of the mind and body in our culture, unfortunately, right? So what we're doing here, what mindfulness is like, the amazing thing of mindfulness and compassion training for physicians, for anybody really is, is like, I am here for myself. I feel more connected and I can teach you how you can actually take care of yourself. Yeah, so it's like, so John Kabat-Zinn, who was the founder of the mindfulness-based stress reduction class, so like what he really did is, so he went into 1979, went into Worcester Medical School, uh, University Hospital, and he's told like all the department heads, send me all your uh, patients that you basically, where you at your wit's end. Like all the patients where you like, they come in and you go like, I don't really know what to do with them. Like I can't help them anymore. And all the patients that you have to tell, like, well, you have to learn how to live with that. And the, I mean, I'm sure you know, like how many people in our society have been told by their physicians or the system, well, you have to learn how to live with that. And, but nobody taught them how to live with that before. And this is really like, so, and this is really why this is like really so important that they came out of the monastic study, right? Very like exclusive in the monastery training to just to be available for Anybody who says, like, I actually want to take a little bit more control back over my life and bring in exactly what you say, the wellness, right? So that is something that I'm doing for myself. And actually, only you can do that for yourself anyways, because I can do this as a physician. Yeah. So like there's like the the mind training, the heart training. And then, of course, like all the, the, the whole thing, what your whole podcast is about. Right. So to really, those are all like tools that we can use and only we can use. We can't tell somebody else to do that for us. 
Yeah, I love all of that. And I think what uh, what I really want to point out next is this idea of agency and feeling like you can take control of whatever's going on. Um, there's a phrase thrown around a lot nowadays where, you know, you should be your own doctor or be your own advocate, which I agree with. But don't always use Dr. Google and WebMD to diagnose your symptoms because there are experts like you. But at the same time, <laughs> yes. like you said, on the flip side, yeah. well, I'm you're wearing the white coat. So, you know, everything and I know nothing. So just fix me. That doesn't work either. There has to yes. be a blend of yes. both. Yes, right? exactly. Um, so when it comes to that idea and we move into this idea specifically of managing pain and chronic pain, which is obviously something you're very well versed in, um, what I want to do is something that's, uh, it's funny, I was listening to you do another podcast with Dan Harris of uh, 10% Happier. And is this idea of kind of unpackaging something from this one single idea and all of its component parts and I had this realization, I'm like, oh, that's kind of what I've done with everything since I was literally an infant. My parents would say, even before I was speaking, I would just look at things and I would move the pieces and take them apart. And I've spent my entire <laughs> life looking at something saying, how does that work? And then I take the pieces apart. Yes. And at first it was actual machines and gears and whatever. And then it was stories and movies, which I've been working on for years and years. But now for me, it's psychological concepts. And there are a few concepts that I think are harder to break into component parts and explain through logic rather than emotion than pain. So before we get into how to manage pain using mindfulness and the techniques that you talk about, I really want people to understand what pain is, both on the psychological level, but also on the physiological level. So where do we start unpackaging something as complex as pain? Yeah. And it's again like, oh, like how, how much time do you have? Like you said, like 8 p.m. <laughs> would you like <laughs> so to like, do a nine part podcast? Should I schedule the next eight yes, parts? Yeah, yes. I know that sounds about right. Yeah. It's, it's so like, but this is really the core point is like pain is very complex. And the thing is that we usually like, of course, like, so we have, a, we only have one pain system. And the pain system was like built of, like through evolution in order to protect us from damage. Makes total sense, right? If you can feel pain, you're in big trouble. If your body can tell you like you just stepped on something sharp and you pull your foot away, like you're in trouble because you won't feel it. Your foot gets infected. You might die of that, right? So it's like amazing. And so we have, we have a saying that we say like acute pain is protective. And then the thing is, so we think, right? And then also there's a direct correlation with the amount of pain that I have with the tissue damage. Yes. So if I hurt myself a little bit, it hurts a little bit. If I hurt myself a lot, right, is if there's a lot of damage, then there will be a lot of pain. That unfortunately is not true for chronic pain because there are all these different layers that now come in because first of all, all pain is real. So that is really important, right? So I often have people come to me, they say like, well, the doctor said they couldn't find anything and then I should see a pain psychologist. And what the patient hears is like, I'm making that up. The pain it's is all in my real. head, right? It's all in my head. Here's the thing. Actually, all pain is in our head because what produces the pain is the brain, not the body. And people really get that confused because they think, oh, don't we have like pain receptors? We have what we call pain receptors. They're called nociceptors. And noci actually means danger, not pain. So it is the role of your body to give information to your brain saying like, there might be danger, pay attention, pay attention, right? Mindfulness is paying attention. So I just love that correlation. So the body tells the brain, there might be something going on here, but then it's through the filter of the brain 
to say like, okay, this is relevant or this is not. The problem with chronic pain is because, right, so like I think everybody has heard of neuroplasticity at this point. If so they whatever. haven't very quickly, because this is an area where I am absolutely obsessed. As soon as I discovered this idea <laughs> that yes. my brain isn't fixed, I have a certain IQ, I can't change, I am who I am. Once the science started coming out and I realized I have a lot more control over this than I think, and I learned this idea of neuroplasticity, my life changed. So let's pause for two minutes, let's assume nobody has ever heard the term because this could be life-changing for the right people. Yeah. So neuroplasticity basically means that just like your muscles change when you work them or you don't work them, this is the thing, they're like neuroplasticity is going on all the time, right? So it means that your brain keeps changing and your brain keeps changing until the day you die. Right. So when I went to medical school, it was still like same that thing is just like, oh, yeah, basically it just goes downhill. Like by your mid 20s, like good luck <laughs> is what it and is. Now, <laughs> that's what it is. Like we're just declining. And this is just not true. So like part of it, and this is like why we're also like doing all these mind trainings because it's like weightlifting for our brain. Right. So like memory and like all these functions, they actually we can train them and when then we can keep it up. And train it like throughout, like really like old age. And this is really important. And so, but the thing is that this is about neuroplasticity is about repetition, right? So whatever you do a lot, you get really good at. Here come, we come back to chronic pain. Or like if you're angry a lot, you get really good at being angry. If you're anxious a lot, you get really good at being anxious. Of course, it's more complex than that, but there's like the lot, like it's like we're having a saying that we say the neurons that um, fire together, wire together. So like we're building like these, like from like a cow path in our brain, like that's very small. We're building like a highway over time. As we're like doing it over and over and over and over. So the brain gets better and better and stronger and stronger at certain things. And that is true for pain. So the brain, because the brain's role is to protect you and what it tries to say, like, I want to be proactive in protecting. So I'm creating pain out of something that previous I would not have registered as pain. Yeah. So and this is why we say like chronic pain is overprotective. It's almost like a car alarm that goes off way too easily. Right? We're all annoyed by those cars that are just like down the street and they're just like going off all the time, right? Because like a bicycle drove by or something, right? So it's a little bit with our brains in that way. So, but the problem is like we're on the receiving end, we feel we're in pain and we feel very helpless and overwhelmed. And we think because there's pain, there must be damage in the tissue. The problem is really that, again, like your brain is adapting, 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 neuroplasticity, learning better and better and better to um, protect you from something and actually creates the opposite. Yeah, that's not its intention if we want to talk about that, but that is unfortunately the outcome. Good news is that neuroplasticity works both ways. <laughs> and so this is really like where also the training, so like, like what, what my book is about or what the mindfulness training is, right? So if an unwatched mind will do whatever evolution, right, has pointed it to you, which is in big um, in big pieces what we call all the negativity bias, yeah? So people probably heard of that, that like we're way more likely to focus, notice, and 
make something bigger that was negative compared to something that was positive or pleasant. So given all of that, what I'd like to do next is actually break this down into even smaller component parts, which thankfully you've already done that work for us, <laughs> right? So this yeah. is the, essentially the three components that you talk about, and there's mm-hmm. uh, all three of them are important. There's one that I think is the most important for my audience today, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about all three. And then I want to get deeper into this idea of neuroplasticity, uh, the idea of developing awareness and this idea of kind of flipping the negativity bias on his head. But you have these three components that you break it down where you have the physical component of pain, the emotional component of pain, and the cognitive component Mm -hmm. of pain. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the physical and emotional because I think a lot of us are pretty familiar with both. The third one, the cognitive side of it, which is the story of our pain. I think this is one of those that people don't see consciously and when it hits them, it hits them like a ton of bricks. But let's break down all three of these a little bit. Yeah, so it's really like I call this like we have this box we call pain. And then we don't want to get near. Nobody wants to be in pain, like very obvious. So there's nothing wrong with us. But we stop actually looking closely what is there. So basically, we have stopped looking into that box. Yeah. So we just like try to like shove it out of the way and like try to get away from it because we don't want it. We right, deny, we distract, we do all these things. And the pain is still there. So the mindfulness practice, what it does is it asks us like look inside. And what we find inside are these three components. So the physical sensations in this moment. So this is really important. So mindfulness is always about how about right now, this moment, this moment, this moment. And where the mind usually is, it's it's either in the past or in the future. And that's, right, we are always in the present moment, but we feel, so if we're thinking about the past, it makes us feel a certain way. When and where do we feel this? in this body, in this moment. Same for the future, right? If I worry about the future, where do I feel the worry? In this body, in this moment. And that is what we don't realize, that we actually have power over, do we let the mind do that? That's the mind training, yeah? So we look into that box. And so physical components, sensations, sensations are different than thoughts. And they're different than emotions. People get a little bit confused about that because we also feel our feelings. So they are sensations, right? When I feel anxious, I feel that. So how I separate those two is like a physical sensation is what comes in through the senses, the outside senses, but also what we call our interoception, how I feel inside, right? And then I have emotions. And this is like the the angry, sad, happy, like those are like what we typically call feelings. And then we have the uh, it, um, the cognitive component or what we call thoughts or story. And what is very interesting is, again, like, so we're looking into that box and then we say, in this moment, out of these three components, which one is the heaviest right now? Which one is the biggest? Yeah. So which one is when I work with this in this moment, I get the most benefit from? Yeah. And then this is really, and because then actually what it asks us to do, so we're bringing mindfulness. So mindfulness is this, and turning towards the experience, even though it's unpleasant, of course, there's pain, I don't want that. But the whole like turning in the other direction is not helping, or let's say it's not helping right now. So we're turning towards that. And then we bring openness and curiosity and say, what is actually here? And so, and I need to do that in order to say, oh, right now, actually, the story is the hardest. Or maybe I'm saying, I'm really upset about it right now. 
And then there are practices, how I can work with these three components, how I work with tracking sensations in the body, how I deal with challenging emotions, and then also how, what do I do with the story? Yeah. And then first of all, just recognizing, right? Oh, I'm telling myself, right? Because very often what happens, so I'll just give a typical example. So you're sitting at your office desk and you notice like you, like lower back pain, like one of the most common pains that we know. You notice like your back is cramping up and and first you try to deny it. It's not working. At some point you just feel it. And then you start to become aware. You go like, oh, so the past pain starts like, ah. Last time that happened, I had, I missed three days of work. Like, oh, my back really spasmed. I couldn't sit. Like, I couldn't do. I had to go to the hospital. They gave me a medication. I had side effect of that medication. All of that, that's the past pain story. That is not happening in this moment. But again, like your brain saying like, wait, 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 there was something. We need to re- remember this. Yeah. And then how do you feel? You start to feel like really anxious. So you start to feel deflated. You start to get fearful because you have a deadline in two days. Will you be able to make that deadline? Now the future pain story comes in. And then, right, so we feel anxious. And when do we feel all of that? We feel that on top of whatever our sensations are here in this moment. And when we're unpacking that, often people say, like, okay, so here's the past pain story with its emotion. Here's the future pain story with its emotion. But if I just allow this to just, just say, okay, so but what is actually here in this moment? Yeah, in my office, sitting here with my computer. And then people go like, oh, that's actually not that bad. Typical, typical. Of course, sometimes it is really bad, but very often people notice like, oh, that I can, I can be with that. Yeah, so that like the whole, again, like the brain, like doing this big hurricane around, basically like that's the car alarm that says, remember last time, big thing, right? And when it's like this big at this time. And that can be a big insight just right there. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt 
problem at. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, and uh, what I want to get into very quickly, I don't want to get into it right yet because I want to dig into the storytelling a little bit more because you're talking to some high-level A-list professional storytellers where they're not only great at telling other people's <laughs> stories, they tell a lot of stories about themselves and Absolutely. their chronic pain and their Absolutely. situation and all the challenges yeah. in their oh, lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to this idea of awareness, Awareness for me, no matter what it is that you're learning about, what whatever it is that you want to change or make better, awareness is always the first step. I've noticed that as a pattern with everything yes. that I've learned, not about yes. chronic pain. I've learned it about time management or about whatever the thing could be. It's always about awareness of the present situation. And what one of the challenges that I give myself whenever I read a book, and I don't always succeed, but a lot of times I try to think to myself, I read this whole book, hundreds and hundreds of pages. I have to find one sentence that sums it up. That's the biggest takeaway. And I'm going to tell you what mine was from your book. That was just, it wasn't an aha moment, but the way you put it and where you put it, it still hit me really hard. But I think for a lot of people, it can be an aha moment, which is that you can only change what you're aware of. Exactly. Yeah. This to me is just, this is the key to everything. And I want to apply that to the idea of storytelling. Because the one thing you talk about is we have the story of the past and the future of our pain, whether it's lower back pain. I know another one that uh, several of my uh, clients and students in my program, and I don't treat them for this, but they talk about it, is dealing with migraines. Uh-huh. Spending all day long in you know, highly air-conditioned spaces with really uh-huh. crappy air, no windows, uh-huh. sitting in horrible posture, staring at a super bright light for 16 hours. And they're like, yeah. why do I keep getting migraines? I'm like, uh, seems kind of obvious to me, right? But there's yeah. a difference between I have a migraine or I'm in pain versus uh-huh. I'm just a person that gets migraines. So I want to dig even deeper into the storytelling where it's not just about the past or the future or what I'm feeling. It's where it becomes part of our identity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is a crucial part. And this is coming back actually to the Buddhist teaching. So one of the core teachings of the Buddha was where he said like, if we're starting to pay attention to reality, what we're noticing is that there is stress in life, right? Or there is pain. There's just no way around it. Like we have bodies that are right, susceptible to pain. And like he called it like old age sickness and death, which of course people don't want to hear. But like as a physician, I'm allowed to say that, right? <laughs> so, and we have to learn how to, de- how to deal with that. And so there is pain in life. Yes, and we have to learn how to deal with this. Things are impermanent. And then the last one is, and they're not personal. And this is a really hard one to get, right? Because like on one level, things are deeply personal. This is my back pain. And I have the back pain because X, Y, Z, or I might not know this, but it's like my very individual personal history. But then on the other hand, it's just like, yeah, I have a body that is of a certain gender of a certain age of a certain right this the conditions that it grew up and how I treated it like the injuries that I had so on that level it's not personal at all that happens to a body in that way 
right? Aging is not personal. It just happens, yeah? So, and then what we start to look at is like, where does it create suffering when I identify with something? And this is like where, where, where the rub is, right? Because pain in itself, and this is really crucial, is like we think like pain is always suffering. And I have a, like a very, or like in this tradition, we have a very nifty teaching where we say like, uh, or an equation, I should say, where we say like suffering equals pain times resistance or worry. I love that. I love that because that breaks like down like, like really core teaching. So first of all, like here we say like pain and suffering are not the same thing. And then like very commonsensical. So I can ask you, Zach, so your experience, so if there's a pain and you either resist it a lot, you react against it, or you worry about it, like what happens to suffering? It just starts to extend. I mean, it just, totally, it, just totally, it just, it, yeah. it never ends, right? It yeah, just it becomes like, embedded in who you are. Yeah. And then, so same pain and or same stressor, it doesn't have to be like a pain, but even like stressor, right? So if you worry about it, if you react against it, right? If you're resisting it, what, um, or you resisted less, I mean, sorry, right? So if like there's for whatever reason, it's just like, yeah, this is how it is right now. What happens to suffering? Uh, it starts to alleviate. It starts to go down, like very, like a duh, like we all know this. So the thing is, the great news about this is like, okay, so if I can do something about the pain or the stressor, please go ahead and do this. But if you can't, you're not, it's not just all toast, right? Because you can work with that, what the mind does, the resistance, the, the worry, the reactivity. And to start with saying like, this is not personal. Yeah. And the more, right. So we have, for example, when we work with challenging emotions, can be very helpful for people to say that instead of saying like, I am anxious, right. Or I am depressed. Like that's a big statement. And it usually doesn't say I'm anxious in this moment or I'm depressed in this moment. But what it basically says is like, I'm an anxious person. I'm a depressed person. And that is then in this case, I have learned over time to identify with it just as if it was like my eye color. I have blue eyes, like, sorry, right? That's what I was born with. But if I'm saying instead, again, like coming back to like mindfulness is always just this moment. And I'm just saying like, there's anxiety here right now, right? This is what anxiety feels like. Okay. Very different, isn't it? Because then it's just like, it's here right now. First, it's not personal. There's anxiety. This is what anxiety feels like. I don't like it, but hey, right? I don't like it that it's whatever overcast or something, but it's that's what it is, not who I am. And when I say it's here right now, it also implies like the truth of impermanence. It will change, which it doesn't, right? When I'm saying like, oh, I'm anxious again. Like all the other times I've been anxious before and I will always be that way. Is that is very different to be with in this moment. Yeah, it just it speaks to the immense power of language, not just yes. how we communicate with each other, but how we communicate with, with ourselves. ourselves yeah, right? It's listening. all about how we communicate with ourselves. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's scary how powerful the, the mind can be when you're not aware of those thoughts. And I have to stop by students often um, when they say things like, oh, well, I suffer from ADHD. I suffer from depression. Yes. I suffer Beautiful. from diabetes. Yes. Or... I am diabetic or I am depressed or I'm an anxious person, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You you feel anxious. You feel mm -hmm. depressed. I catch myself doing this as well. I'm oh, just as yeah. human as anybody else. 
Um, you can have diabetes. It doesn't mean that you have to suffer from diabetes. It's like you said, diabetes is not something, maybe if it's type two, we, there are nuances, but let's just talk about type one diabetes. That's not changing. No. That is a part of your genetic makeup and a part mm-hmm. of your identity on the physical level, but you don't have to say, I suffer from diabetes. I have it. Knowing that I have it, what are the the systems that I can put around it? One of them potentially being mindfulness to help me get through something like that. But that language is so powerful in understanding how can I manage it? Yes. And then what we're really also noticing, because sometimes people say like, well, this like the whole thing of like things are changing all the time. It's just like, like my type one diabetes won't change, period. So where's the, where's like your, your change shoes here? Saying, no, 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 it's not about that, but it's like how we're relating to it. Yes. So our because perception can, of it. Our perception, exactly. Our attitude towards it. And this is really what it comes back to over and over. It is like in this practice, it is not really so much about the experience, but how are we relating to it? Am I fighting this, right? So to come back, I suffer from diabetes. So if we're looking at like the language that we have created around pain, yes, so we use painkillers, right? Like when you're in pain and ask you, how are you? You might say like, oh, the pain is killing me today. I don't want to live with something inside of me that's killing me. Yeah. So there is like, we have like, unfortunately, like, like adapted, like the, the warfare language around this. Right. And so that, that has an effect on how we feel. There's something in me that is killing me. That is not a safe place within me anymore. Yeah. And then we have such a, um, difficult relationship in our culture with our bodies, right? It has, they have to look perfect and function perfectly in order, right? So like the, there's like all these ideals that we're trying to um, yeah, look like, be like. And then if it's not, then the pain that comes from that and chronic pain, right? So that gives pain on top of that is my body is not functioning the way it should be functioning. And the whole, the, the whole emotional pain around that. And that is so difficult to hold that. So if we're starting to look at like, and this is so like one part of the teachings that where what I'm teaching is so is awareness or mindfulness. The other one is actually kindness and compassion. Because if there is pain and I can do something about it and I can use all these practices, but there will be periods where there's nothing I can do about it. It's just here and it's hard. And then to remember that how good it feels if you're struggling or you're in pain and then somebody gets that and sees you, right? Might be your partner or a friend or a colleague, right? So you're saying, like, my back is so hard right now. And a person says, I, oh, that's you having a really hard day. Yeah. And not from this like top down, like, oh, poor you. So that's not what I'm talking about. But really, I hear you. I see you. Right. And that is such a precious quality. And we're usually really good giving that other people. Most of us have a hard time giving that to ourselves. And yet we all have been on the receiving end of that relief that can happen when we're really um, receiving compassion. And there are practices how we can learn to be kinder, more compassionate with ourselves which scares the shit out of a lot of people because they think, oh, this will make me weak, right? 
this will make me complacent. This is like, I never get off the couch ever again if I'm too kind to myself. I kind of need the whip. And then to come back to what we, you were talking about, like what are the beliefs that are working? So I don't know how exactly you were able to crawl inside my brain and my thoughts just now. <laughs> um, but I was like, wait a second. I watched your face. How, how is she doing that? <laughs> um, but I, I, I am just as guilty, if not more guilty as anyone else. One of the lessons that I've really learned the hard way over the last several years of making the transition from a craftsperson to now being a coach and a teacher, this one hit me like a ton of bricks, is when I, I don't remember where I read it or where I heard it. I consume so much information. I forget a lot of times where it comes from. Oops. I want to attribute everybody. I have no idea where I actually heard this, but somebody said you often teach or coach what you need to hear yourself the most. And I was like, Oh, that one hit deep because I talk so much about burnout and people being more compassionate with themselves and what they're capable of, but also realizing that sometimes you have to give yourself a break. You don't always have to push hard hundred percent of the time. And then I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't apply to you. Like you just, you just keep pushing forward. Right. I mean, I grew up, it's funny because you brought up much earlier in the conversation, the idea of a cow path. And I'm like, not a whole lot of people talk about cow paths, but I grew up on a farm. So I knew exactly what you were talking about. (laughs) So I don't know if you grew up on a farm too, but I know that vision of these very clear paths that they take. And as a, as a farmer in a very rural, very conservative community, you had to be as masculine as masculine can be. Like there, yes. there was no room for compassion or self-compassion or mindfulness. Like, pfft, are you kidding? Like, that just makes you weak. Like, you just tough it out. You suck it up. How many times did I hear that with whatever I might have been dealing with? And living in that environment is a very, very sensitive, very empathetic individual. I mean, that that caused some pretty long-term damage that I'm still unwinding to this day. But this idea of mindfulness and compassion, these two things, you almost never hear about one exclusively without the other. I find that if, you, if you're going to learn about compassion, you're going to learn about mindfulness. And if you're going to learn about mindfulness, you're going to learn about compassion. It's, it's really hard to, to unpackage the two and have them separate from each other. Um, what I would like to do now is I want to dig in a little bit deeper into the how. I love to talk about the why. We've talked a lot about the what. But I want somebody to walk away from this call actually having action steps. And the challenge of that with this specific conversation, and I think that Debbie, who's my podcast producer and has also been a student of yours, would attest to, there's this idea of being versus doing, yin versus yang. I'm guessing you probably know which spectrum I probably land on. I have no idea. No (laughs) idea, right? I'm very much on the doing yang energy spectrum. She is the balance of the yin and the being. So it's very difficult for me to want to turn this immediately into an action step oriented podcast because it's almost antithetical to what we're talking about. So I want you to help me find the blend of making the rest of this conversation, understanding pain and being with it versus, yeah, but I actually want to walk away feeling like I can do something about what I'm, I'm dealing with. So given all of that, one of the things I love about the structure of your book, I love when authors do this, where it's not just, here's all the information. Let me get my fire hose and open it up. And here's all the research and the information. It's, let me explain this one simple concept and tell you a story about a patient that dealt with it. So I want to break down some practical action steps for how we can use mindfulness as a technique to manage chronic pain using an example, either an amalgam of people that you feel are similar to maybe the audience listening today or very 
one one very specific person that you can think of where we can just kind of break them down piece by piece. Here's what they were dealing with. And here were some of the steps that I took them through to use mindfulness as a practice to either alleviate or even eliminate their chronic pain. I would like actually, if that is okay, to pause for a moment and come back to your first part of the doing versus um Yeah, being. let's do it. Because Absolutely. that is, and then I can, I'm happy to share uh, like a, a story or a couple of stories. But so the thing is really, so we're so used to doing that we have, like many of us, we have forgotten how to be. The thing is, we were all beings when we were born. Babies are not doers. Yeah. So as children, really important. Like, so we have it all in here. We've forgotten or it has been trained out of it or it has been gotten a bad reputation. The thing is just like you talked about the yin and yang. The yin and yang, they need each other. And they actually have the core of the other. Like if you look at the yin and yang symbol, they have the core of the other in the, in the other, right? So we need both. And my theory really is in my experience and working with people is like when we're able to be more, our doing becomes much more effective. And that is really scary for people because they, we have been trained that only like the doing, doing, and I'm German, right? So I'm not, didn't grow up like in raw, like masculine, like conservative America, but I'm German. So for me, it's just like, we're doing, we're working, worth ethic, doesn't matter, like suck it up. Like, so very similar to, right? So being was not part of my growing up. So, but the thing really is, it's, there is like, right. And those, so a lot of the Eastern teachings, they're saying like, if you can, right, if you can be in the right way, then the doing will happen by itself. And we don't believe that because like, right. And like our culture is really against this, but if we can just um, entertain that thought that in the being mode, there might be something really important that supports our doing, that supports that what we really want to accomplish. And we might be able to do that actually with less effort and less time. How would that be? And we would actually have time where we can rest, where we can receive, where we can just be. Because, right, if we're thinking about our nervous system, our nervous system needs that. Yes, so we have one part of the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, right? The fight, flight, freeze, activation, all the like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love that. We have, many of us are addicted to that, right? Like here's my coffee cup, right? So <laughs> I'm course, a member right? of that club. I'm addicted to <laughs> and, the sympathetic right? nervous system right there so, with you. But what about the other one? Right? The other one, the parasympathetic like the rest and digest. Do you need to sleep? Do you need sleep? Do you need digestion? Do you need an immune system, right? <laughs> all, all of these things, yes. We do. How about libido? How about creativity? Right? All these are actually like they are really bound in the parasympathetics. So parasympathetics, as it says, is like rest and digest. Yeah? So that is actually like doing mode and being mode, if you want it in that way. So and I want to just give you an example about that. So like, don't do this. If you listen to this while driving, then please don't do this or do that while in the traffic light. But so just, just for a brief moment, close your eyes and then open your eyes and then close them again. And then as you open again, what do you notice? You notice seeing is happening. Do you make seeing happen? No, seeing is happening, right? You're not, we're not making seeing happen. You can do the same thing with your ears. Right? So you can just pay attention to the sounds around you. Are you making hearing happening? 
No, it just happened. So, and it's, it's like actually the same with, so this is how we want to practice mindfulness. So mindfulness is not like what we learn in school, right? So they're like all these, there's a bandwidth of how we can pay attention. There can be this very focused attention on one thing. But when we're meditating or when we're actually learning and training to be instead of doing, it's a very relaxed, like it's kind of like you could just saw me, like if you're like, watching this on video, I just like rest the back a little bit, right? And you can invite invite awareness in so that awareness is happening. I don't have to make or do awareness. And often what happens when we do this is the body goes like, oh, thank you, thank you. And like we can literally feel how our, the parasympathetic gets activated. And meaning like we feel like, oh, this is nice, yeah? So it's like almost like a relaxation response. But what we're training in this practice actually to be is to not be like too relaxed. So a lot of people think it's a relaxation training. It's really not. It is what we're aiming for overall is actually to be very at ease and very awake at the same time. And that is an amazing feeling. Yeah. So we're not aiming. So the goal is not to feel amazing. But the thing is, the more we practice this, the more we have moments where we actually feel at ease. Yeah. Where we don't feel stress, where we can kind of step out from under this, like we often use this image of a waterfall of like thoughts and to-do lists and stress. And we're just like, we're bombarded and we really feel it. It literally feels like we're under a waterfall, right? It's just like, oh, I can't be here anymore. So how do we do this? Like here's an how-to is we step back, right? Literally, it was a waterfall. How does a waterfall work? It falls over a cliff. And when it does that, there is actually a space right behind the water that is not hit by water. You still get wet, yeah, but there, and it's still loud, but you don't get, you don't get hit by the water. And this is what we can do with this practice. We can just step back. And become the observer of saying like, wow, lots of water here. Lots of very loud sounds here. And you can say, like, wow, lots of like tightness in my body right now. Lots of racing thoughts about the deadline. And then we're back at like, oh, this is not who I am. This is the experience of this moment. Yeah. And so those are like just some um, ways and hopefully useful images and we can step back every moment. And that's the training. And this is really the mind power, right? This is not powerful if you're bombarded, if you can't get out of your own thinking. I mean, most of us know like what I'm doing in my brain is actually not helpful, right? To replay the same over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's just like, I'm so tired of myself thinking that way. But I don't know how not to do this. And then I'm do like, right, we can't stop our thoughts just like we can't stop the waterfall. But what we can train ourselves to do is to step back. And then let the thought just do its thing. And But we don't have to be our thoughts. That's where we get in trouble. As a side trivia note, do you know what the name of that space is? No. If you're looking at a waterfall, if you're a fan of Disneyland or Disney World, it's called the backside of water. It's a really oh. bad joke. 
It says uh, you go on the jungle cruise and they take you through that little space and they say, ladies and gentlemen, the backside of water. And I could not stop thinking about that and applying such a dumb joke to such a that's, profound that's visualization. Yep. Because you're right. The What you don't want is, oh, well, the meditation makes me sleepy, but that's good because I get to rest. You're not developing the skill of awareness. But I love this vision of you've got this rushing waterfall. You're in this very tight space, but you're not in it. You're right beside it, observing it. And that to me is what the, the sweet spot of meditation feels like, where it's not quiet and silent. And all of a sudden, all you hear are birds chirping amongst the chaos. It's more, I actually hear what's going on around me, right? And I feel what's going on around me, but it's not me. When you're in the waterfall, it's just, it's all coming down on top of you. You don't have the space to be mindful of it. Yeah. Right? But when you're right next to it, you can be. This is actually one of the reasons that uh, one of my, I would say hobbies, but I don't really have hobbies. I have obsessions, which again, <laughs> young energy probably doesn't surprise you. Um, but I love running Spartan races, Tough Mudders. I know that you're a marathoner. I know that you're a triathlete. And the it seems crazy from the outside. Like, why would you pay good money to crawl through the mud and under barbed wire and get sprayed in the face with a fire hose? But what it does more than anything better in my entire life is it teaches me about the present moment. Oh my god! It's the weirdest oh form gosh. of mindfulness yes. training where yes. when you're crawling under the barbed wire and it's 45 degrees out and you're covered in mud and they're spraying you with a fire hose, you're not thinking about the email that you have to respond to on Monday. <laughs> you are in it and you just realize <laughs> there's nothing that I can do about this moment. I am in this moment. I can't change this moment. I need to get through this moment. And you just, it's this weirdest feeling where you start to develop acceptance. And I didn't understand it for years. And all of a sudden I realized that it wasn't just at the race. When I was going through this, I was starting to feel this everywhere else. Something would happen. I remember somebody hit, I bought a car and the same week I bought a brand new car, the first car I've ever bought brand new in my whole life. I'm parked at the, the pharmacy, boom, somebody in the parking lot hits me. And I'm like, come on, I've had the car for a week. But then immediately the thought was, well, this is now my new present. I now have a car that's brand new that has a dent in it. I can't undent it. I mean, I could get the dent fixed, but I can't undo the situation. And I find that that level of awareness is just permeated into everything. And now I want to take that idea of just being more present with the sensations, being able to step back with the mindfulness and now dig into specifically somebody that has the chronic pain, that's listening to this, that deals with the migraines, the lower back pain. I'm sure there are a few other things you could uh, explain or express that you see in your clinic all the time. But let's talk a little bit more about how we take everything we've talked about and apply it to, yeah, but what about me? How do I take all of these ideas and use them practically? Yeah. So um, I'll give you an example from like um, a person with lower back pain. That was like was like a bunch of years ago came like lower back pain was just like, I can't work. My life is over. Like a uh, man in his, um, I would say in his 40s, right? So like live kids, like full-time, more than a full-time job. And, um, and what we did is really um, we started to practice several different things. And we started with, so when we have chronic pain and we want to work with the sensations, right? So I, we talked earlier about, so here's a way how you work with thinking. And this is, I will steal this, like the backside of water. I will call this it's all the backside. Yours. It's, I stole it from Disneyland. So take it and just let Disney sue <laughs> so you. The backside, I would call it the backside of thoughts. There yeah? you go. I because love it. we're stepping out of our thoughts and just like their thinking is happening. I can't do anything about it, but I can stop giving energy into it. 
is we don't realize that by our right, just like when you're training a dog and the dog is jumping on you and you say, stop that, stop that, stop that. The dog says like, hey, I'm getting attention. This much is good. So we are reinforcing that. Very similar to thinking. So person came to me, lower back pain. And so what we're training is body awareness because when we're in pain, the mind collapses along the pain, right? And it feels like there's just the pain, everything else is gone. So the practices that we work with that is, so for example, doing body scan practice. So body scan is where we feel into different parts of the body without asking anything for it. And what we're doing when we're in chronic pain is we're reclaiming the areas that are not in pain. Because, right, so again, the mind collapses around it and it feels like I'm just pain. When we start to do this, we go, my feet are not in pain, my lower legs are not in pain, and so on and so on. And in this case, with this man, what happened was so at that at some point, we got to the area where there was the pain. And then I said, like, okay, so let's just explore this a little bit instead of making assumptions of the pain. How, what is it like in this moment? Because it's like, oh, it's always there. Like a lot of people say it's always there. And then, so going into it, they said, okay, so what's the size? Where exactly is it located? Like, is there a texture to it? Is it dense? Does it feel more liquid? Is it hot? Is it cold? Right? Because those are all actually sensations, not like the pain is killing me. That's an interpretation. So, which I can make from over here and I can make from memory. Now I'm asking you, what is it in this moment? And I went into it, said like, what's the size? And he says, well, it's about the size of a quarter. And in that moment, he realized, for him, that was a really big insight. He realized this, like, what is stopping his life is the size of a quarter. And the rest of his body is just fine. And he learned through this practice to say, like, yes, there is the pain. And, right, 99.9% .9 of my body is actually fine. And this is like, right, we like um, touched on the negativity bias earlier. That's part of the negativity bias. Again, makes total sense. If there's pain in the body, we want to know, we want to fix it. But there's in this moment actually nothing to fix. And so I have to like very gently let my mind know like, yes, honey, I get it. Like you want to focus on this. And like, this is not dangerous right now. Yeah, because we're afraid of it. We have resistance against it. So this is almost like a next door sound that is annoying, right? So you you know those moments like when the neighbor has like the, um, whatever, the, the television on and there's just nothing you can do right now. And you can sit here, be upset as you want, or you can say, like, okay, it's like, that's just the way it is right now, right? So if we can be with this in that way, that can make a huge difference. And then really this like reclaiming of everything that works. Because so what we do is, so first of all, we change our perception. We change really this idea, how am I relating to this? And then if I stop being so worried about it or so reactive against it, and if I then notice like, oh, here's the story it wants to go. And again, I just go to the backside of the, the thoughts or the story then things can start to calm down because I'm not aware usually how much like what my mind does is actually keeping that whole ball up in the air. 
I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Where I want to go next is this idea that you call the paradox of doing nothing, where we're developing this awareness of the pain and we're being, but immediately, because this is the way I'm trained and all of us are trained and conditioned our entire lives. Yeah, but what? why am I doing this, right? I'm being, but I'm supposed to be doing something. So I have an agenda. So I guess the agenda or the goal is that, uh, well, I'm meditating to make the pain go away, right? I want yes. to meditate to eliminate the pain, right? So how, talk to me about this idea of the paradox of nothing, because as soon as you have an agenda and meditation and it has a desired outcome, Aren't you now attached to an outcome, which is the non-attachment that you're supposed to be seeking? It's it's this idea, it's this endless, it's the chicken <laughs> yes, and the egg, but with meditation is. and pain management. So talk to it me is. more about this yes. idea of now the agenda is there, which destroys the whole point of this. Yes. So of course you come to the meditation because you want the pain to go away, which is like basically why most people come to meditation. Maybe it's not physical pain, maybe it's emotional pain. Maybe they call it stress. Maybe they call it habits that they want to change. Yes. But so in in our under this umbrella, we still all call that like pain or stress or dukkha. The Buddha called it dukkha, right? So that is like the just the the stress of being alive. So this is why why people come. So of course, because that is actually a good motivator. So this gets you in the room in starting the practice. And then what we need to do is like, this is really the paradoxical thing is, so I know basically I want to be over here. And then we have the saying, the fastest way in this practice is in order to get from A to B is to be fully at A. Mm. And that actually works. Right. Because whenever I notice like, oh, I'm not over there. And this is like, that's life. Right. I'm like most of the time people say, like, oh, if life would only be like this, then I would be happy. If it was like this, then I would be happy. And so we're missing our lives, which is tragic. Right? And how many people have had that experience when something changed or was over, like a relationship or a job or something? I realized in, in retrospect, that was amazing. And I wasn't aware while it was happening because I was always like future, 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 future. 
Yeah. Or so, pass, 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 pass. Or pass, pass, pass. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so this is like a very profound training. So can I be fully here? So even if the moment is not perfect, but I will only know what this moment is like if I actually check in, if I'm actually present with that moment and not already making the assumption that's like, I don't want to have this moment. I want to have that moment because then again, I'm not, not here again. And so, and this is, this is the paradox is can I trust? And this is in the beginning, like you actually, when people come and want to learn mindfulness, they already come with a little bit of trust because they have read about it. They have read the data, right? So they know there's a lot of research on it. They Maybe they know people they like who have really changed through practicing mindfulness. Like I often have that people in my classes, they come, especially men, I have to say, they say like, my wife took this class and I think it was really good for her. And now I am here. Right. So people I'll see give that. it a try. Let's <laughs> see. Give it, yeah, a lot yeah. of you cynicism. Yeah. You convinced me. Right. So the people that are sitting in the room like this is like, so like, oh, they're all welcome. Right. And so as long as this is like, we never know where, where things land. But then this is really the core of the practice. Can I be here with this moment? And then what really often happens is people start to see like, either that moment isn't this bad. Or they, they realize this moment is actually amazing. Yeah. And then, so, and this is like, we also want to really bring in practices that really look for the good or look for what is working because we want to like kind of rebalance the negativity bias. Yeah. Instead of just saying like, well, this room is like the AC is too cold in here. And this is all that I focus on. I go like, oh, actually I like my chair is very comfortable. Right. Right, like the light that comes in through the window. And then when we do this, then it kind of waters down the intensity of like what's wrong. And that is true for the pain as well. Yeah. And what I want to point out even further, because this is another one of those, I think, huge light bulb moments for me that you, you've said it in a different way that I've never heard before. And just like you're going to steal backside of water, I'm going to steal this one from you, <laughs> which is that in order to go from point A to point B, you have to fully be at point A. Like that to me is such a profound realization, not just for managing chronic pain, but for life. And I won't go too deep into this, but I've had this conversation now many, many times with a lot of experts, authors about the term work-life balance. And if I were to really summarize it down to the problem in a single sentence, it's the saying that I hear so many people say over and over again. When I'm at work, all I want to do is be at home. When I'm at home, all I want to do is be at work. And if you're at home for 40 hours, and you're at work for 40 hours, technically that's balance. That is work-life balance mathematically, but there's 0% balance if when you're at point A, you really wanna be a point B, but now you're point B and you're thinking about point A. That to me, if you can rewire that perception where I just need to be a point A when I'm a point A, be a point B when I'm at point B, that's where mindfulness to me in every facet of life becomes so much more powerful. And I think specific to chronic pain, if point A is I feel this now and I hate it and I want to get rid of it, point B is I no longer want pain. You got to be with it before it goes away. Yeah. And the thing honestly really is, so there's like some really interesting research that um, shows that when we have chronic pain, we actually stop sensing the body in general, which is very important. It's really important information. So of course, so with pain, we don't want to feel it. it. Makes total sense. 
So, but we cannot, or our brain has a hard time saying, that, well, let's just stop feeling the pain. So what it does, like our brain stops feeling the body. And then also stops feeling what feels good and what feels joyful and what feels meaningful. Yeah. And this is really important because a lot of people with chronic pain, they say like, like everything feels kind of numb. Yeah. Or we know that like, like with chronic pain, like there's a high correlation with depression. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And to know like, oh, this is like, this is kind of like the brain tries to help and it's not with what is going on right here. And so we kind of have to just with all the love and uh, knowledge in our heart and mind to step in and, and change that. And to do like these like gratitude practice, right? Or just like being aware of like, they call this yes and practice to say, yes, there's pain and what is good right now? Or what might feel pleasant or what is not in pain in this moment? So that we widen our container again and to also really go with like, what is the pain like right now? Yeah, because what one thing that we know that really blew my mind is that like our brain can create pain from memory. Yeah, so we there doesn't need to be actually like some um, injury in the body. The brain can create pain from memory. A very clearly example is like phantom limb pain. Mm-hmm. very real, extremely painful. What does the brain do? It creates pain from memory. And, and so how can we counterbalance that? So that is like, of course, we do everything to make the pain go away. And I hope it will. Often it does. But even if it's not, it doesn't mean like we're doomed or life is over or life can be like really fulfilling and joyful and connected. And it goes back to this idea that you mentioned earlier, where all pain is in the brain, yes. right? Essentially, everything that we experience is perception, yes. right? There, and we can get very existential and philosophical, and we don't need to go there. <laughs> but uh, essentially, other than I think, therefore, I am. So in some way, shape, or form, I exist. Everything around us is our perception. I don't know 100% that I'm actually physically standing here and I'm talking to you via a Zoom call. Right. My brain could be feeding me that information and I can be some battery that's hooked up to a power system. I could be in the matrix. There's no way to prove that I'm right and there's no way to prove that I'm wrong. But it just brings up this idea that all of the pain is coming from the brain and it's all about perception. And the more you develop awareness and connection with a part of your system where you recognize it. And like we keep talking about, you're kind of in that space behind the waterfall. That to me is such an important place to be. But then it kind of begs the question that if the brain is creating all of our pain, well, does then that mean that there just isn't actually chronic pain like is the brain just saying i want to feel this this is here and you are perceiving it but it doesn't actually exist like it it that's again kind of goes back to this fear of it being psychosomatic it's all in my head yeah no i mean and of course it's like this is like where like more complexity comes in right so because for a lot of people so people might have had an injury in the lower back or they might have had, and this is really the problem that with chronic pain, there's a very high likelihood that people have had an injury at some point, that they had some surgery at some point, that they had some invasive procedure, which of course does something to the body, or there was an accident. Yes. And then it gets like very like multi-layered. But then like if we would look at the same person who has exactly the same, like whatever we call physical manifestation, the pain levels can be completely different. 
And so like this is like my person the personal way that my brain, given like my personal history, right, is doing this to these what comes in from the periphery, what comes in like through my system. And that is what I need to work with. I can lament it, right? But this is what I need to work with. And really, and for this is like just coming back to just starting with like, it's really hard to live with chronic pain. Yeah. And it's hard. It's isolating. People don't understand it, especially like I often hear, especially like younger people, like they say they constantly get like, you're too young to be in chronic pain. And you go like, like, what do I have to justify myself that I'm in pain? Yeah. And so there are like all these like implications, societal implications and how much time it takes for me. And like, yeah, it's, it's just it's just very complex. Well, when we talk about this idea then of at some point, the pain probably was acute, whether it was an injury, whether it's you've been sitting with horrible posture in a terrible chair designed by a company called Aeron. I don't care if they sue me. Aeron chairs were designed by Satan himself to look really good in an office space, in photos, horrible for the human body. I say all this because in my mid-20s, chronic lower back pain could not even stand up straight. 25 years old. I had spent my entire younger life as an athlete, practicing martial arts, teaching martial arts, and I'm 25 years old and I couldn't stand up straight because I was in this chair all day long in the wrong position in front of a computer, wasn't taking care of myself. So that was very acute caused by something. But now something that's a lot more nuanced is you're talking all about physical pain, but you've also talked uh, talked about depression, talked about anxiety. Would you classify anxiety and or depression as pain? It is emotionally painful, yes. Yeah. And in this case, it might not be I got into a car accident and I displaced one of my lower discs and now I have chronic pain from it. So how do we reconcile this perception of anxiety or depression as a form of emotional pain when we're thinking about, well, is this my fault? Like, do I deserve that it's here versus, well, yeah, the guy rear-ended me. So I know why the disc slipped and I know why I hurt myself. I still have to deal with the chronic pain, but there's less the sense of I'm broken or I deserve this or, you know, I'm I'm wrong. So how do we deal with that more nuanced form of pain in our perception yeah, of it? Yeah, you know, actually, so the case is like, I know exactly where my pain comes from. This is actually the more the exception. There are way more people who are going like, why do I feel this pain? I don't understand. Which is why I wanted to bring it up because I would guess it's a lot more common. It's That is a lot more common, which again, like then it's very similar to like coming back to what's wrong with me. And this is like something that is in for a very sad reason, or sad reasons, like I don't know even why that is there, but this is very ingrained in our society, in our culture, that we get the impression that there is something wrong with us if we're not looking a certain way, performing a certain way, are a certain way, the way that like society expects us to be. Yeah, so we're internalizing that and that is painful. And that is like, and again, like there are many reasons why people can feel anxious or why people can feel depressed. I think just being alive in these day and age is like plenty of reason to be anxious, plenty of reason to be depressed. And then what we also know, and then just want to point to that is like, we are also, right? So because so in the field of, of wellness, in the field of mindfulness, in, in medicine, more and more, we're becoming more aware of the impact of trauma. And in particular, like early childhood trauma on our health throughout life. And one thing that we know, so there's like this 
and a really important study that um, like actually I think Kaiser Permanente did with the um, CDC, like, I don't know, like 30, 40 years ago, um, I think in the 80s. Um, and they did like with um, their their clients, they were looking at so um, what they call adverse childhood events. So like they had like a list of 10 adverse childhood events. And of course, there are plenty more, but something like, did you have like a, an alcoholic parent? Was a parent absent? Did your parents get divorced? Did you um, like experience like um, like sexual abuse, emotional abuse? Um, is it was a parent in prison? Like so the list of this. And then they looked at like what were the health complaints of people later, different ages. And what they found very clearly makes so much sense, right? Because this is our sensitized nervous system, our highly activated, traumatized nervous system. The more events, adverse childhood events people have, the more likely they are to, to get a chronic illness later and to get chronic pain. Yeah. Talking which, and then of course, so we're seeing like, so I might've been more susceptible through the way I was raised, which again, is not my fault, but I'm more susceptible to actually develop chronic pain. And so for that, even more, it's so important to look at, so, and what is helping, what is helping like a nervous system that has experienced trauma? And so these practices, and there are like lots of therapy forms that, and more and more that um, we're finding really helpful because that can be balanced, right? Coming back to like what, what, what we're balancing and mindfulness and compassion can be very helpful on, on that journey. So again, well, I think what we're, my point is like, again, the more I know, the more self-aware I am, the more I can adjust, Right. So that's what we want to do. We want to adjust. That starts with like, I'm sitting on the wrong chair. I need a different chair. How do I know? Because I'm checking in, in the moment, right? And not denying or like kind of avoiding or blocking out how I'm feeling. So all, all of the mindfulness, compassion sounds fantastic. Also sounds like a lot of work. You know what? I'm just going to get some Advil. I'm going to get a prescription from my doctor, get some, you know, get some pain medication because they're handing it out like Pez. Super easy to get, or you know, maybe I'm going to get uh, chiropractic adjustment. I'm I'm going to stick with staying in the body. I'm going to stick with the the Western medical system. Appreciate it. It sounds like a lot of work. How do you uh -huh. respond to that? Yeah, I mean, like everything that you learn takes some work, and so I mean, that's just like people can do with their lives what they want to do. But I am basically I'm telling people you can take re agency in your life in a way that nobody else can. You can really change things. You can really change the way how you are in your body, how you are in your life. You can actually become happier. Like, right? So that is that is actually quite a big promise. So it's like not that you can experience less pain, but you can actually become happier and more content overall in your life through these practices. I, you, know, you need to put in some time. Yes. Just with everything, right? If you want to, if you want to have like big guns, you have to go to the gym and practice. Yeah. So you can wish all that you want, but in the end, it's like if you want to, and then we say if you put in a little bit of time, you get out a little bit. If you put in more time, you get more out of it. And I know that like right now, like there's this big trend of like, oh, like one minute mindfulness or five minute mindfulness. And I think it's all good. It's just like, right, if you're if you're very sedentary and you walk 
five minutes a day instead of not walking at all. Great. That's a great start. Yeah. Will that get you to run like a 5K or 10K? It won't. I think that's a really good point, especially when it comes to how I frame the idea of optimization. This is a speech that I have to to kind of give as a preamble a lot is people think, oh, optimization is all about reaching this point of perfection. It's about finding the biohack, finding the cheat code. That's really kind of what the word optimize denotes in our 21st century technologically driven age. And I always have to tell people that, no, it's not about the relentless pursuit of perfection. It's about the relentless pursuit of progression. Right. And the way that you encapsulated it is so important. What you're going to put into it is what you're going to get out of it. So I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, meditation, I hear that gives all these benefits, but I'm I'm not going to do it an hour a day. But now there's one minute meditation and I'm going to get all the benefits of 60 minutes of meditation (laughs) because somebody cracked the code in this one app. It's like one minute of meditation is better than zero minutes, but it's not a quick life hack to get you the same results as 60 minutes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So on that note, I want to be very conscious of your time. But as I am aware, you have some resources that are going to help us go deeper into the how. Um, So talk to me a little bit more about for somebody that's listening today. They obviously have the book. We're going to have a link to the book in the show notes so they can find that. I'm clearly a supporter of it. That's why I have you here. But I don't just like to rehash the book on the podcast. I like to go into a lot of the the deeper ideas and allow you to talk about things that aren't just regurgitations of what you've already written. But if somebody actually wants to get started, as I understand, you have resources that are available for people to dive in right away. Yeah. So one thing, so people are really interested in just really learning more about like working with pain. So I have an on-demand class for chronic pain through mindful.org and like that is is on my website so like and you can find other resources so I'm teaching like uh, classes and I teach retreats so if you're interested in that that's like how you can find me you can also find me on Instagram that's like the my main social media it's as much social media as I can as I can muster yeah I'm right Um, there mustering is a good word for my feeling about social media it's like uh, okay, <laughs> I'm going to check in now, right? Like I'm, I, I'm very averse to it, but I find it's a necessary evil to be able to, to communicate with people and find them where they are. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think what I want to do for anybody to make it super easy, if they're driving or they're hopefully taking a walk, doing something active at the moment, and they don't want to write down mindful.org uh, backslash P backslash working dash with dash pain question mark. Um, I'm to send them to optimizeyourself.me slash wolf, W-O-L-F. So optimizeyourself.me slash wolf, and that's going to take them to your on-demand class on chronic pain, help them learn more about you and the services that you offer. Uh, Is there anything important to you that you'd like to discuss and leave us with that I have not asked you yet? Yeah, I mean, one thing, and again, I don't want this to sound too woo-woo, but often people think it's like, I don't have time for this. This is not worth it. And for me, honestly, like our world, like needs these tools desperately to be more aware and to be kind. And we need to train in this because like this is something that we're born with, but just like with all our gifts, we actually need to develop them. We need to train them. And if I think really, if we want to turn around what is going down in the world right now, we need these desperately, these practices. 
I could not agree with any of that more. I endorse that 178%. I think the world would be a much better place if we replaced some of our basic curriculum in school with things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga. Both will make us physically stronger, but like you said, mentally stronger. It's like mental weightlifting, right? Yeah. Um, so I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your very busy schedule, helping people and making their lives better and doing the same for myself and my audience today. So thank you so much Wonderful. for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.